Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Loeb, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Law firms win court victories that can change not only the law, but the culture of society. However, sometimes changing the law isn't enough to change the culture. Dr. David Trowbridge, an assistant professor of political science, has conducted research into legal organizations that represent the LGBTQ community. He has found that public education has become an increasingly important aspect of these organizations' work. We'll find out how educating the public has become an essential part of legal advocacy after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU captured a sweep in its three eligible categories at the 11th Annual Nashville Technology Council Awards. Winners were announced January 23rd in Nashville. Charlie Apigian, co-director of MTSU's Data Science Institute, won for Data Scientist of the Year. The Women in STEM, or WISTEM, Center captured the Diversity and Inclusion Initiative of the Year. And Louise Lang, an Information Systems and Analytics graduate student, won Student of the Year. And Tennessee business leaders have a much more positive outlook of the current and future economy, according to the latest Tennessee Business Barometer by MTSU's Jones College of Business. Results of the quarterly statewide online survey showed the index soared to 508 this month, up significantly from 211 in October. The index is based on the percentage of positive and negative responses from survey participants to a series of economic questions. Graff said the recent United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, also known as USMCA, along with the Phase 1 trade deal with China, should support higher-paying jobs for American workers and growth in the U.S. economy. The current U.S. unemployment rate of 3.5 percent is the lowest since 1969. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. David, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, You studied eight legal organizations that deal with LGBTQ Mm -hmm. issues. Tell us about your methodology. Uh, so I, uh, I selected the ones that, ex- that, well, two types of organizations here. Uh, one are impact or law reform organizations. Um, and these are organizations that really select cases based off of their perceived ability to create some type of policy change. And then there are other types of organizations that are direct legal service providers that really are selecting cases to achieve success for the individual clients, right. right? And so there are a very small number of impact organizations. And so I talked to all the major ones, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, uh, Land Legal Defense Education Fund, uh, and GLBTQ Advocates and Defenders, the big, the big three impact organizations. And then I chose as many direct legal service providers as I could find. So in terms of the sample methodology, like that's basically how I chose them is a near universe of these organizations. And in terms of data collection, largely qualitative, right? So, uh, which is something I knew from the onset that I wanted to do. I wanted to talk with real people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, uh, largely interviewed, um, just under 40 or about 40, uh, individuals at these different organizations in different positions from the executive director to staff. And I also did uh, archival research. So I went to archives in San Francisco, uh, Yale, New Haven, uh, and in New York City. 
And I collected a little over 400 documents and analyzed these and looked through these. Uh, and then from the interviews, I took transcripts and ran them through software program, coded them for certain categories, and used those to complete my research. And the Bear v. Lewin case in yeah. 1993 was uh, apparently a really pivotal moment in uh, causing law firms to be aware that litigation just wasn't going to be enough. Explain how the blowback from that informed what law firms do now. So in Bear versus Lewin, um, this is a 1993 state uh, Supreme Court decision in Hawaii, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where the uh, non-recognition of same-sex couples uh, uh, was being, for marriage licenses, was being challenged. And the state Supreme Court found that this was likely a violation of equal protection under the state constitution. The way the lawyers saw this and treated this was that it, at, at that instant was a tremendous victory. Okay, mm -hmm. we got our court victory. Whoa, this was huge at the time, right? This, I couldn't have imagined it, right? Because specifically, it's you know, to some folks at the time, it seemed a little bit cart before the horse, right? Because yeah. achieved marriage victory, but what about employment protections? Mm -hmm. About housing protections, right. healthcare protections, but it was it was it was huge. It was monumental at the time. So it was this huge victory followed by this huge counter mobilization mm -hmm. uh, on the political and social end. The, right. The, so the advocates of one man, one woman really started to rev up. Right. Right. And so you saw a referendum in Hawaii that kind of that rolled back, changed the state constitution. Right. And you saw a ripple effect to the rest of the country. Right. Because what happens is if if one state has recognizes same-sex marriage and, uh, and, and and gives out marriage licenses to same-sex couples, then the other states thought to themselves, well, we're, we're going to have to recognize those marriage licenses. The full faith and credit uh, clause. Bingo, right. that's right. You're a student of the Constitution. <laughs> the U.S. Constitution. That's perfect, that's right. And so states began to change their laws to specifically so their laws and some of their constitutions to ban same-sex marriage and then the federal government came in and passed doma the defense of Man's marriage act uh defense of marriage act rather not against right. marriage in 1996 yeah. so there's this huge blowback and from that to boil it down lawyers learned that you cannot just win in a legal courtroom you have to win in the court of public opinion too Right. And that's essential element of what public ed education does alongside uh, litigation as a tactic to achieve change. As much discrimination as this particular interest group has suffered, it's sort of surprising to me that they didn't anticipate that they would get all this blowback. I don't think that they were naive. I think that there was there was some in, a, anticipation, but I don't think that they quite, based off my observations, they quite knew it was going to be to the extent that it that it was. In part because I'm not sure that they really thought they were going to achieve a victory there. Uh -huh. Some some lawyers did, right? Mm -hmm. And and some lawyers within these, and I'm thinking specifically now of some, someone like Evan Wolfson at Lambda Legal, who really had to kind of coerce his organization to let me go down to Hawaii and let me let me do this you know try this case I'm like wow well, all right you know I think they saw that as potential success and now I'm thinking through it too yeah you know, there were certain individuals who were concerned about a, about a blowback but the mindset there was victory first in the courtroom and then we'll worry about it later uh -huh. and I think nowadays it's well we can't worry about it later uh -huh. um, we have to be we have to be interacting with the public and culture as we're going through the courts so the the mentality now at these legal organizations is trying to win hearts and minds mm -hmm. as well as legal cases, they have to occur on parallel tracks. They have yes. to be part of an all-inclusive holistic strategy. Yes. That's right. The lawyers were thinking of their end goals in a very legalistic way, that if you create a change in the court, that's going to be 
it's going to equate to social change. But these type, this type of backlash and these results, I think, reoriented their thinking. Whereas, even though we're lawyers and we use litigation and courts as our strategy, our end goal is actually outside of the courtroom. It, it is a social change. It is a realized rights on the ground change. And so, we need to think as our main tactic of the courtroom as part of a of a larger repertoire. And we got to use all of these tools simultaneously to achieve the other change that's happening outside the courtroom. Oddly, one of the things that so actually brought up Evan Wolfson earlier, right? So he works at Lambda Legal. He's his lawyer, longtime advocate for marriage equality, uh, amidst all of these other issues, major issues that LGBTQ people and organizations are fighting for. And he ends up leaving Lambda in the late '90s um, to start his own organization called Freedom and Mary, which ended up doing a lot of these, it was, and it was not a legal organization specifically, but it was an advocacy organization. And a lot of it, what it d- did was these focus groups and surveys about what kind of language would work mm-hmm. uh, in the public. And it was these hearts and minds strategy, not the, not the legalistic language of, of equal protection or civil liberties, but people language mm-hmm. and hearts and minds and, and marriage and family ended up being sort of the successful language and framing that, that worked. Worked well in the public and then that actually transferred pretty well into courts when it was working, was working with equal protection and due process. We'll take a break right here. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking with Dr. David Trowbridge, an assistant professor of political science. Uh, He has written an article that was published in Law and Social Inquiry, November 2019 edition. It's titled Engaging Hearts and Minds, How and Why Legal Organizations Use Public Education. How do the LGBTQ groups that you studied integrate public education into their activities? I don't think that these lawyers look at at it in a formalistic way that I do, right? So one of the things I do is I go out and interview a bunch of people and I take what they say and I try to create this sort of formal typology. So while I create these sort of these baskets, there certain things are interchangeable, right? So here's what I say in the article is that one, public education can be used to prime a successful prime a pathway to successful litigation this takes the view that lawyers do not live or sorry judges rather do not live in a vacuum they are part of society of course they're going to be affected by cultural societal changes societal norms or what does equal protection mean what does due process mean what, what is a person right and these things can affect their decisions and so the idea is that public education when you're when you're doing this work to affect the public you're also part of the public is also these judges that you may be bringing your cases before second is using public education to control for backlash so we talked about the Hawaii State Supreme Court decision, right? Mm-hmm. And just does that matter? How do we control so the backlash either is not as bad, or what if backlash if we win, or what if we uh, what if we what if we lose, right? And then can we still get some type of other win out of it by having a public education campaign, right? Third is how can we uh, leverage litigation in in terms of like, in terms of like negotiation in terms of success, right? So some of this is for public education is used for 
priming into a court case or controlling for backlash after, but also how can you use public education to make litigation a more useful tool during ongoing, during a case. So an example of this that I use in the article is a case that that Lambda Legal was participating in with Foot Locker. Uh, a, a local Foot Locker store had fired a uh, employee uh, because he was gay. Lambda Legal conducted a postcard campaign, uh, blowing the whistle on Foot Locker or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and did all, did all the, the media interviews and TV and radio. And they really credit that media campaign with getting Foot Locker to just settle in the end right because right? they, they they in the beginning for locker it was like oh well, we'll take we'll take this case to court we'll win you know but after mm-hmm. a while after all, all, all the media exposure that okay not worth it right mm-hmm. so using public education that way to to uh, in, enhance uh the power of litigation and competency training uh general awareness raising amongst the public or awareness raising of uh individual rights among the target population in this case lgbtq people mm-hmm. Know your rights workshops. Here are your rights. Here's how to utilize them. When you're caught in a situation and you think it's wrong, here's what you need to do. Here's a phone number to call. Uh, so it's yeah. partly about educating the gay community as much yes. as anyone else because there might be people who will say to themselves, same old crap. There's nothing I can do about it. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, take it to court. I'll just spend a lot of money to be disappointed. Yeah. And this is part of a whole area of public law literature called rights consciousness or, right, or, or legal consciousness, right? Um, so that it's, it's, that's critical. And then the other aspect of public awareness is raising awareness in the general public about uh, uh, in, injuries that are that are are occurring uh, in hopes of uh, raising public support. And then the third basket there is educating quote unquote elites, by which I mean practicing attorneys, but also people, you know, uh, cultural competency around uh, someone who works, um, you know, uh, uh, people who look, work in local office, state offices who are interacting with the public. Uh, judges, right? So judges and lawyers, uh, every state bar association ha- uh, requires a certain number, of, certain number of continuing legal uh, education credit hours. They have to do every year, every couple of years, right? And so a lot of these legal organizations will put on workshops or uh, CLE trainings to educate judges and lawyers on uh, law and sexual orientation or uh, law and transgender rights. So that when these lawyers have clients who are uh, in need of their services or judges have a case before them that requires or that is about uh, the rights of, say, a transgender person who's been fired from their job, they understand it a little bit better. And so these are the sort of the, the four primary pathways, the, the, uh, the priming uh, for successful litigation, controlling for backlash, uh, uh, helping leverage litigation and general public awareness. Is that all these interesting ways that uh, lawyers who were trained in just using the courtroom, mm-hmm. right, in these legal organizations, use public education to really help what they do. But it's quite possible that the law schools have not necessarily caught up, or veteran judges who've been on the bench for decades might right. not necessarily have caught up with the latest advances in LGBTQ law. And this is why they need to have someone who speaks their language to let them know. Absolutely. I mean, there are certainly some universities and law schools that will teach some of this stuff, but in large part, they're not getting that this type of specific training 
training and uh, with this specific group in, in law school. And, and that's why some of that, that training at the end there is, is really important mm-hmm. afterward. Yeah. The momentum from the legal victory still seems to be important, though, because you point out in your, your article that after a Massachusetts state Supreme Court yeah, victory, sure. the donations to one of these yes. organizations really went up. They didn't have very much money to spend on legal education or full-time staffers to devote to the public education to begin with. So if a legal win sparks fundraising, that can be put back into the public education aspect of the legal organization. Uh, the organization you're talking about there is, is GLAD. Um, uh, and GLAD has really a regional reach uh, coming from out of, out of Boston and Massachusetts. In the article, I talk about how they had, they had in the early 2000s, they had long had a education director, but they made a specific choice to expand their public education work in the early 2000s with the belief that they needed to win in the quote unquote, the court of public opinion uh, uh, if they were going to achieve the kind of success they wanted to outside of the courtroom. The 2003 Goodridge decision in Massachusetts made Massachusetts the first state in the country to achieve marriage equality. And it had huge legal and political implications because that was also leading into the 2004 presidential election. Here was an organization that right before was investing in education and then saw this tremendous success. And then there was an attempt at backlash in the Massachusetts state state legislature, but it failed. In part, these lawyers and staff members will tell you they think in part it was because they did this public education work Mm -hmm. beforehand. And then because of the amount of money they were able to raise off of this success, and other great organizations too, they were able to reinvest that back into litigation. Their staff numbers grew, their budgets grew, and, and the amount of work they were able to do uh, grew as well. So it's sort of a sort of a feedback loop, uh, which is critical to their success. And the success of one can if, in a, can influence the success of another organization because they again they, they these organizations don't live in a vacuum and they often work together. If one is is taking the lead on the case, the other other uh, organizations might be submitting uh, amica or an amicus brief uh, uh, in that case. Friend uh, of the court. That's right. Um, and they also, these lawyers and executive directors tend to meet a few times a year or at least uh, 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 talk to each other. So there's a there's a strong network uh, between these, the, uh, the larger impact law reform organizations. Time for another break. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle East Center at MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The Center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. 
We're talking about how legal organizations, particularly those that serve the LGBTQ community, are realizing that public education is just as important as litigation with Dr. David Trowbridge, an assistant professor of political science who has studied this. The advent of social media, how Mm -hmm. did that facilitate the public education aspect? It was so important that the the change of technology, the internet, social media, it created a space and a conduit through which organizations could reach a a significantly more number of people for much less, spending much less resources, Mm -hmm. right? So we're talking about nonprofit organizations that already don't bring in that much money, right? Um, mm-hmm. And our, our, uh, the resources are spread, are spread already pretty thin. This is huge, right? Being able to reach uh, a greater number of people. Um, and a lot of their public education is done, you know, through, or, or outreach is done through, through social media. So it's, it's really important. And if you look at their annual reports, they'll have, even have little trackers on there that say like number of clicks and things like that. Uh, they, they, they believe, I'll say they believe it's paying off. I don't have the evidence to say that it is, but they, I can say what they believe because that's who I interviewed. Yeah. yeah. Something that occurred to me is I was wondering why the civil rights movement, uh, didn't provide a paradigm for gay and lesbian groups in balancing the litigation with the education, because it seems to me like the NAACP has been doing that for decades. These organizations, when they first began, were were modeled exactly off the NAACP LDF, Legal Defense Fund, which you're referring to, right? And this is the Brown, the Brown decision. But when they started Lambda in the early 70s, Gladden and CLR in the late 70s, um, in early eighties, they were like one, two person operate for like full-time staff operations and, and, and largely right. volunteer work. And so mm-hmm. and pro bono when they first began. And so the education just was not, yeah. there wasn't just the resources for it. And, and in part, because they were just trying to, to win as they were going along. Yeah. And it really wasn't until they had grown and realized, Oh, Hey, we, we should start doing this stuff now. Yeah. Um, I think that they were following a, a model like the NAACP LDF, except that the situation on the ground is a little bit different than when it was then. They were always doing this litigation. We'll do some, we'll do policy work in education. But here, education became, has become a much more significant part of what they do to the point where it's 30, 40, sometimes some years, nearly 50% of mm-hmm. these organizations' budgets, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a difference of uh, scale that, you know, the era you talked about, the Eisenhower era, right? That's the era of the quote unquote, we talk about the red scare, right? The lavender scare, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. People who were outed as gay were denied security clearances, right? denied entry into the military, kicked mm-hmm. out of the military. Yeah. In 1986, there was a decision, uh, Bowers versus Hardwick. Um, this is a case that involved uh, anti-sodomy law in Georgia. Cliff notes for the Supreme Court basically says it is okay for a state to criminalize same-sex sexual relation. And in the majority and concurring opinions, the justices of the Supreme Court uh, describe gay people, uh, same-sex relations, as akin to drug abuse, as mm-hmm. a victimless class. Like, that's their conception. Minds have to be sort of completely reoriented. And so, yeah, there's huge educational hurdles to to overcome. But there were also cultural shifts that are happening around it, too, right? The, the 90s in television, the TV show, Ellen, I know it sounds kind of oh, trivial no. to say, like a TV show, but a TV show is like, the, you know, gay and lesbian characters out in 
the world. But again, you can to bring this back to the courts, right? You can imagine that the viewers of those TV shows, or as as a judge, it might be a judge or a lawyer, or and if, if more people are, are comfortable then coming out, some judge there niece or their nephew or their daughter or their son you know oh they're gay too right and and and, and oh these are real people and yes. and, and, they're, and they're, they're just people right. they just want to get married <laughs> you know normalizing that is really important again to draw back to the article the the significance here is that lawyers are going to lawyer right they use law and courts to to create change through judicial decisions here. But here we find that legal organizations staffed by lawyers that use litigation as a major tool realized, hey, we can't do what we want to do in courts without also engaging in the public sphere. And so now you have lawyers doing taking on roles that you wouldn't you're not they're not taught in law school. They have to become basically essentially like activists and yes. and mobilizers of people. But dealing with the media again is a different kind of public education than yes. dealing with somebody in a workshop, for example. There are there yeah. are different Absolutely. modes that you have to shift into depending upon your audience, right? Absolutely. How many times you know have, have they, they they go on television and they and they, they consider it part of their duty duty, even though they're lawyers and they're they're trained in litigation, mm-hmm. they go on television and they do that work because they know it's important to achieving their actual goal, and that is realized rights on the ground, not just in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. So that media work is is really important. Yeah. What kinds of related issues do you think that other academics can use your research paper as a jumping off point to explore? Uh, to to take your uh, work and then use it to uh, explore, go in different directions with their own research? That's a great question. I would say to use this to explore other areas where cause lawyers, and this is what the, the, how the literature refers to them as, use non-litigation tactics to achieve their goals. Public policy work, uh-huh. lobbying, and specifically working with the administrative state, talking, speaking with the EEOC or the Health and Human Services on their policies or the Department of Defense and the Pentagon and their policies, right? Mm-hmm. Working within the administrative state instead of through the courtroom and seeing if you can achieve change that way. And I, and and. So this article that I wrote that's on education is is, a, is one part of my, a larger project from my dissertation that I did. And I have a chapter on some of this policy work. This is an example of how you can explore how what other tactics lawyers are are using. I learned from my, my own research how lawyers who have achieved so much success, how they perceive how to get social change done, right? Because the bottom, at the end of the day, that's what we're, we care about, right? So the study of politics, right, they say is the study of who gets what, when, and how. Right. It's about power. Mm-hmm. Who has it? Who doesn't? How is it disseminated, right? Mm-hmm. I guess if you're going to take that really sort of far back view of this article and others like it, it's that, well, how do these lawyers who are who are achieving change, how do they perceive a successful operation? It's not just through courts. It's not just one thing. It takes multiple tracks. Future research can continue to see how these tracks sort of line up. What else can you use besides litigation? How else can you sort of double up on these these tactics to achieve change? What are the pathways perceived by people who have achieved success and cannot be sort of replicated? The article is titled... Engaging Hearts and Minds, How and Why Legal Organizations Use Public Education. It was published in the academic journal Law and Social Inquiry in November 2019. Dr. David Trowbridge, thank you for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. We'll be right back. The Middle Tennessee State University Women's Studies Research Series features compelling monthly talks on gender-related topics by faculty and graduate students. The series offers a chance to learn about research in progress and to chat with faculty in an informal setting. All lectures are free and open to the public and are held on the MTSU campus. 
For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. Hundreds of prospective MTSU students and their parents will attend the Honors College President's Day Open House on February 17th. Tours, talks, and fun activities are planned throughout the day as prospects learn about the various offerings. Honors College Dean John Vile provides details. It's a time where most students, they know where they've applied, where they've been accepted. A lot of them already know if they've gotten scholarships or not. And if MTSU is in the mix, which we hope it is, it gives them a good chance to take a final look, talk with some fellow professors, meet some students here, get introduced to to the programs that we have. Well, we usually have some special events like a science demonstration or a mock trial competition. I'll have one event with all 500 or 600 students. We also have a President's Day quiz in the Honors College. So if somebody wants to prove prove their chops when it comes to presidential knowledge, uh, we have a few scholarships that we give out for the winners. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU On The Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.